In fact, if you never ask God any questions, it's doubtful that one really has a relationship with mm-hmm. God. Because we're not talking about the questions of the skeptic, right. who's simply asking questions because he doesn't believe there are any answers, mm-hmm. you know, nothing like that. But genuine, you know, I've had students who've come to me with these questions. And my response is, well, you can ask me, and I will tell you what I think the Bible says. But you know, you can also ask God. Mm-hmm. And he will give you answers if you're attentive, mm-hmm. whether you, it's through Bible study or life experience. God is in the business of revealing things to people mm-hmm. who are asking the question, why? I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Carl Wilcox. I guess you could call him a Why They Did That legend now. So far, he's the only guest that we've had featured in each season. And there's good reason for that. His insights into Bible characters that we all thought we knew quite well are so deep and insightful that it makes you question if you've ever actually read the Bible properly at all. And I think that's a gift. We never have people on the show just for the sake of it or merely for tradition. Rather, we believe that they have a profound message straight from the throne of heaven. Perhaps the most important and crucial person in the entire Old Testament is the great patriarch Moses. Deliverer, miracle worker, freedom fighter, shepherd, pastor, legend. It's worth pointing out though that his life story didn't always look like it was heading in that direction. Having killed an Egyptian, Moses heir to the throne of the greatest nation in the world, fled for his life and became a lowly shepherd at the outskirts of Mount Sinai. There he seemed rather content to wallow away into apparent insignificance until that fateful day that the God of Israel revealed himself. Except this is no superhero origin story, no. This is the story of God trying to convince a man to fulfill his destiny and failing. He's totally anonymous. Mm. So from a worldly perspective, we would argue, or we would say that Moses is a failure. Mm. He uh, had a chance of a lifetime and he blew it. Blew it completely. And now, uh, you know, time and chance has overtaken him. He's, you know, in a sense, deserved this fate, but he's herding sheep in the middle of nowhere. Mm. No network, no connections, no chance of ever going back to Egypt and fixing his mistake or delivering, helping to deliver Israel. This verse, I think, is written in such a way, especially the phrase, to the back of the desert, (laughs) to let us know that he's out of, he's out of play. Right, he's become a no one, essentially. He's decommissioned, yeah. And yet still, we find that although, as you said, from a worldly perspective, he's a nobody, he's still certainly a somebody to God. Yeah, and the place he's gone to, it's the back of the desert, but it's also the mountain of God. Mm. Now, he wouldn't have known that yet, (laughs) but we, the audience, know that. We're, We're listening to the story. We know what happened later regarding Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. Mm hmm So from his point of view, there's no significance to the mountain that he's herding these sheep around. But from us who know history, we realize that this is really full of significance. Mm. This is quite a dramatic moment in any story when you see the main protagonist living as if he's a nobody. But we actually know he's going to become a deliverer uh, with God's help. And therefore, the life he's living now, which is completely, you could even argue, almost a wasted life, Mm. actually something is about to change that dramatically, if he's willing. And and this isn't just a a random occupation. Even in terms of what he's doing, there's incredible significance 
because God is going to essentially just substitute the sheep for what the sheep kind of typify people. Yeah. And Moses is going to be going straight back to this mountain. In fact, Moses probably at times wished he was herding sheep and not Israelites. <laughs> yeah. But we all like sheep have gone astray. I think that does a disservice to sheep because they go astray because they're not very bright. We go mm. astray because we're sinners. Purposeful. But yeah, that's an interesting point. He's, he's going to keep shepherding, uh, which of course is a messianic role as mm. well. And it's important to remember that God's heroes are, almost without exception, nobodies until they're elected by God. Mm. God chooses people like Jesus, who, of course, was also a, essentially a peasant. And this is a peasant's job, you know, mm. actually herding the sheep. He doesn't own the sheep. He just herds them. Right. God chooses the losers uh, for reasons I think we know, namely, they're teachable, they're meek, they're humble. Mm. So from our perspective and from the perspective of the narrator, Moses is an ideal candidate, but that's, that's not his view of himself. Yeah. The Bible is God's word to us. It's how he speaks to us. So you can be forgiven for thinking that throughout history, God has always been speaking. Not so. In fact, in this communication with Moses, God is speaking to a man for the first time in about 500 years since he last spoke with Jacob. And now God breaks that silence. But it's the way that God approaches Moses that's the most fascinating. God approaches each man differently based not only on what he wants that man to do, but also on who that man is and his character and his background and so forth. God's very sensitive to individuality in that sense. And so he appears to him, and it's, I love the way the story is, is put here, in a flame of fire. Well, that's very divine, isn't mm -hmm. it? I would expect God to typically approach people as God, namely as a flame of fire. Right. Uh, and we see this throughout the scripture. But then the next line is, is really amazing. In a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So in our vernacular, God appeared to Moses in a bush. Now, he's a flame of fire, which is divine, right. but there's nothing divine about a bush in the desert. But of course, this becomes a kind of metaphorical type of, of the incarnation, doesn't it? Mm. Jesus, who's divine, enclosing himself in human form, is parallel to God, who's a flame, in a bush. Remember what his brothers said? You know, they just assumed everyone, you know, or what the Nazarites said, well, isn't he Joseph's son? Mm. Isn't he just a bush? <laughs> and they have a point. <laughs> but, of course, he, he also had the divine in him, the mm. Holy Spirit. He was God-man. Well, you know, this is, mm. you know, this is ancient history, relatively speaking. This is very early before the Exodus even begins, before there's even a nation called Israel. And yet here we see this type, this foreshadowing mm. of how God will redeem the world mm. uh, amidst of a bush. And not only is it just in the middle, but the bush, it says, and the bush was not consumed. Yeah. Which really, I think, is the part that's, if the fact that there's a flame in the middle of the bush didn't grasp your attention, then how about the fact that there is something that is clearly very flammable, yeah. it's on fire, yeah. and yet it just continues to burn without ever being consumed. Yeah, so like, uh, like a creosote bush in the desert, when it catches fire, it really burns. Mm. And I suppose it's uh, understandable, or you could somehow explain it away in natural terms that, well, a bush ignited in the desert, and it burned up. Moses could keep moving on, perhaps mm. wondering, but in this case, he can't move on. Right. In fact, the narrator makes it very clear, but the bush was not consumed. Okay, so the bush is burning, but it's not burning up. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Mm. So now we understand that God is a communicator, highly skilled communicator or persuader. Mm. It's not a gimmick. But it's a, it's a miracle that inspires curiosity right. and interest. And I think that's where kind of what you said, that God is, is almost orchestrating this 
divine opportunity mm. in a way that he knows is going to grasp Moses' attention. Like, I could come and just be like, Moses, you know, and <laughs> shout at him in the middle of the desert yeah. and, and appear to him through lightning and thunder and grandeur. But instead, he comes to this man as as this, yes. this small, almost <laughs> insignificant, yet incredibly supernatural flame. Yeah, and that's all true. And I like the fact that God is, in doing it this way, God is telling us that we are created in his image. Mm. As creative as this approach is, it's also, how can I put this? Um, it's God's creativity um, acknowledging what human beings are like. Mm. We are curious. We were made to be curious. God made us, or Jesus made us that way. So, of course, he wants to do a miracle that inspires curiosity, not a miracle that just scares Moses into doing whatever God tells him to do. This is a very human miracle, but it's also a very divine miracle in the sense that now Moses is actually actively seeking to answer the question, why? Right. And I really think that's the essence of conversion, mm. is to ask the question why, and then to discover that God has the answer. Mm. Seekers, people who are looking for truth, are like Moses. He, you know, he's not, um, he's not a dull person. He, he's fully alive. He sees this incredible sight, and he wants an explanation. Mm-hmm. God made us to seek explanations. Mm. And of course, in heaven, that's what we'll do for eternity, is we'll continue to seek and discover answers to life's great mysteries, especially the mystery of redemption. Mm -hmm. So this, too, is a type of all future conversations, genuine conversations with God. God wants us to ask him questions, and he, of course, answers them. Right, and I think this is fundamental to understanding what a relationship with God looks like. Yeah, It's not just purely about obedience, and yeah. about you know fitting certain forms and experiencing the same experience that everyone before you has experienced. Yes, this is about knowing who God is and how can you come to the point in a relationship with anyone. Yes, you know, trying to figure out who they are without that time of initial questioning. Show me who yes. you are. What's this about? In fact, if you never ask God any questions, it's doubtful that one really has a relationship with mm. God. Because we're not talking about the questions of the skeptic right. who's simply asking questions because he doesn't believe there are any answers, mm-hmm. you know, nothing like that. But genuine, you know, I've had students who've come to me with these questions. And my response is, well, you can ask me, and I will tell you what I think the Bible says, but you know, you can also ask God. Mm. And he will give you answers if you're attentive, mm-hmm. whether you, it's through Bible study or life experience. God is in the business of revealing things to people mm-hmm. who are asking the question, why? Right. Now, what's neat about this, what's really wonderful, is that God sets up a scenario so that Moses really almost has to ask yeah. the question, why? And so I think God does that with us, too. Mm-hmm. But of course, at any point, we can just ignore the burning bush that does not burn up and just keep walking. Mm-hmm. But but that's perverse, isn't it? Right. And yet sometimes we do that, but yet God makes this amazing opportunity for Moses. Mm-hmm. He really can't resist it. I'm going to turn aside. And that's a key phrase too. Yeah. I'm not just going to herd sheep today. I'm going to actually deviate from my normal day-to-day existence, and I'm going to do a little bit of questioning. And I think God's offering us opportunities like mm-hmm. that, each of us individually, every day. Right. Things are happening that we don't understand, but are we so locked into just doing our nine to five and living in our rut that we refuse to turn aside? Mm. Well, we've lost an opportunity to engage with God. Yeah, You know, we talk about, well, you should have your morning devotions. And sometimes that just becomes a, um, it's a good habit, but sometimes it's just a mechanical one. It just one. becomes a form. I don't do it because I really want to learn something. I do it because, well, I have to, and it's just a habit. But I don't think God, I think really God wants you in the morning in your devotions to read a passage and say, why? Because the Bible's always raising questions if you're attentive to it. And you'll say, why? And then you won't know. And then you can ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. And then suddenly, oh, a whole new insight. So this is a pattern for all of us, I think, in our relationship. And it also shows just how well um, God actually knows Moses. 
Yeah. Because he knows this is going to work. He yeah. knows that Moses, <laughs> who's, you know, no doubt seen amazing things in Egypt and is now, as we've said, stuck out in the middle of Noah with sheep, that he's, you can imagine he's almost looking for something to captivate him. And when he sees this, you know, not only is he is he thinking himself, hold on, I need to go and check this out. But what I love in verse four is that now that God has seen yes. that Moses is interested, he begins the communication. So, I mean... You could you could infer that if if Moses, as you said, decided to just walk on by, that God would have stayed silent. God oh, wants yeah. God wants us to show that we're interested. That's a profound implication. The Bible says, or Jesus says, seek and you shall find. Mm. You will not find if you're not asking why. Mm. God never forces truth on people who aren't interested. He says, yeah. don't throw your pearls before swine, which I think means don't teach the gospel to people who could care less. Mm. You're wasting your breath. You need to find ways to stimulate interest, mm. and then what you offer them will be received. So there's always a rhetorical uh, requirement in, the, in evangelism. Namely, and most people recognize this, you need to find a way to stimulate interest. But of course, this is not just a gimmick, is it? It's mm -hmm. not you know making uh, some you know, shooting a gun off in the air and everyone goes, oh, you know, those gimmicks, they don't last. This right. is genuine interest because this is a miracle. Mm. And it's easy to sometimes forget that the burning bush is an actual miracle because no one's healed. Mm. But there are many kinds of miracles. And this miracle has this power that, of course, all of us need. We all need to see miracles. Otherwise, we kind of lose any appetite for God. Yeah. We need to see that God is more powerful than us. So in a way, what Moses is doing here is he's asking why, but he's also doing more than that. He's recognizing that here's something that's beyond the human. Mm -hmm. It's the transcendental. It's the religious. Uh, now, he doesn't understand what it's about, but as soon as you see something like this, you know that there's more than just you know the human perspective. Yeah. And God, God, it's not, it's not, you mentioned the miracle. It's not as if God has been unwilling to, you know, participate in the supernatural. No. He's frequently both before this and many times after this, he uses miracles in various different ways to capture the attention, to say, no, actually, I am God. I'm the only God. Yeah. Um, and I love that, that here we find that not only was this bush on fire, and, and not consumed. But when God finally does talk to Moses in verse four, the mm -hmm. voice comes from the bush. Yes. God was actually there. And for me, there is no greater miracle than the miracle of God actually inhabiting something so common. <laughs> yeah, and that's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the that's Father. Right. And that, you know, Jesus was in a human body, not a bush at that point, but that's the miracle of the plan of redemption, that mm -hmm. God became man. And you can never fully comprehend that. Yeah. It's beyond what we can understand. The other thing I like to tell students is that it's important to understand that when it comes to God as a persuader, throughout the Bible, God uses miracles. And I go so far as to argue that there's no conversion without witnessing a miracle of mm -hmm. some type. The greatest miracle that God performs is the transformation of the human heart from selfishness to selflessness, mm -hmm. to love. And of course, the burning bush is an amazing miracle, but when I, say I were a secular person and I were to meet a person who has actually received the miracle of heart transformation, when ungodly people meet a godly person like that, they ask the question, why? Mm. Now, one reason evangelism often falters is not because we don't have truths, but because often we're not transformed. Mm. We don't actually, rep we are not a living miracle. And of course, this, this is an individual work. I need to ask myself when I teach my students, am I just passing on good biblical knowledge? Or am I personally a living miracle? Right. And these are hard questions because many of us think that our Christianity is just about communication of information. Right. And that people will believe because the information is proven from the Bible and so forth. But in this case, we see that God begins with a miracle. Yeah. So essentially, we've been flameless bushes. 
Yeah, imagine trying to get Moses' attention if you're just a bush. Just a bush. And that's a very good point, Dean. You can preach till you're blue in the face, but they've seen bushes before. Mm -hmm. Everyone's a bush in the internet age. Everyone has something to sell, something they want to say. And you're just competing in a marketplace of other bushes. Maybe you're more religious than some bushes. Maybe you're less. But if you're not a burning bush that's not consumed, you're just another voice vying for their attention. Now, of course, the the flame in our lives is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that's promised to us. Yeah. But often we don't even really ask for the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We kind of maybe mouth a few words. But this is essential to evangelism that we be living words or burning bushes. Otherwise, people don't turn aside. They just keep moving on. But not Moses. Moses does turn. He recognizes that God is here, that God is trying to get through to him. And this is where it seems God struggles, if God can even struggle. He's trying to convince him to be his mouthpiece, to deliver his people. And Moses' response, who am I? It's not that he necessarily disbelieves God. It's that he doubts his own self so much that he's struggling to see what God has always seen. When he was a young Egyptian prince, he tried to deliver his people. And it all went wrong, Uh, for good reasons, because the people didn't want to be delivered by a murderer. I wouldn't trust them either. And the deliverance was never meant to be mercenary. No, indeed. So it's kind of ironic that having failed at that, God now chooses the same man who failed as a deliverer, partly because he was self-appointed, largely because he was self-appointed, and his motives were not yet pure. Uh, We can infer that, I think, from what happens with the Egyptian. Uh, And now God comes back to him and says, "Um, I want you to do the very thing that you failed at. And of course, just from a psychological perspective, most of us don't want to repeat failures in our lives. So, you know, for example, let's say I tried to get into medical school. I didn't, but let's say I did and I failed. And then the Lord comes to me and says, well, apply again. And I think, well, my first reaction is, no, I've already had that painful experience. I mean, anything, you can name anything. You know, you tried to run a marathon and you got three miles in and got a cramp. And that happens every time you try to run a marathon. Why would you want to do it again? You don't. And so God says, do the very thing you're the least gifted at, namely delivering an enslaved people. And you just think, why would God choose me? Why would he choose that which I am a failure at? Well, there's a good theological reason. Because if he does it, he won't have any self-confidence. And that means God can do more with him. But still, from his human perspective, that very lack of self-confidence is enough to, to inspire him to say, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Again, that's deeply ironic because he used to actually be in Pharaoh's house as his... Now, I don't know if it's the same Pharaoh. I mean, I don't know all that, but... He was once there. Yeah. So you'd think that by now, even now, he would say, well, yeah, I could do that job because I used to be an Egyptian prince. But this tells you how much he's been humbled, Mm. that he can't even entertain the idea of delivering Israel. Yeah. And paradoxically, that's exactly why God chose him. Mm. He couldn't choose him and really use him to do this until he and Moses was certain that he was incapable of doing it. Right. Until then, what could God do with him? Mm. Very little. Yeah, it's it's as if Moses sees himself as the last person that could possibly do this. Yeah. And for God, he's the only man on the list. Yeah. It's the only one that makes sense. As you said, he's the only one that I can actually use. The difficulty comes in trying to show him that. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that Moses does not say, I will not go. Mm. Moses is a God-fearing man. He communes with God in nature, with his sheep. He's been writing the scriptures. I mentioned that before. This is not a man in rebellion. This is not a man who does not know God. This is a man, however, who's going to honestly tell God what his fears are. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. God does not shame him or rebuke him for telling, uh, for Moses telling God why he thinks he can't do it. Mm -hmm. 
God in no way censures Moses for doing this. Instead, Moses raises an objection, and God then offers a solution, or what we might describe as a piece of comfort. Mm -hmm. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort Moses. Moses, you're terrified. And then he says in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. Right. There. Yeah. So yeah, you're nobody, it's true. But guess what? I'll be with you Mm -hmm. when you do this. God is with us. It's a promise he has made to us over and over. That doesn't mean life will be easier. He just promises us the strength to do that difficult thing that lies ahead of us. To trust that promise though, to claim it by faith and believe that it's for us, that's the challenge. And we'll explore a lot more of that challenge when we come back, so stay tuned. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That. If you've listened to the second season of Why They Did That, you'll recognize our sponsor for this episode. Types and Symbols, the creators of the Conflict Beautiful series, is happy to introduce a new beautiful set that they call the Life and Light Collection. Types and Symbols set out to create the most beautiful and readable edition of Steps to Christ, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and Christ Object Lessons ever made. Each component of these beautifully created books was implemented with specific meaning and purpose. From the holographic foil detail to the cover design. Just as with the Conflict Beautiful series, the Life and Light collection follows the same editorial philosophy to promote an enjoyable reading experience. To stay updated on when this will be released, make sure to follow their Instagram at Types and Symbols. Do it now. Quick. For nearly two decades, AFCO, the amazing fact center of evangelism, has been helping people from all backgrounds learn the practical skills about how to seek and save the lost. And now, it's getting even better. Amazing Facts is taking our comprehensive three-month training program to the next level at our recently constructed Word Center facilities. This new in-depth outreach training program distills the very best of more than 50 years of Amazing Facts evangelism expertise into a dynamic educational experience. This special training program presented in partnership with Weimar Institute will equip you to become a better soul winner, Bible worker, missionary, health evangelist, and all-round disciple. Also, AFCO's expert staff is gonna help you put your new training into practical use by doing an overseas mission trip where you will conduct your own two-week evangelistic seminar. You'll gain real-life experience while winning souls to Christ. AFCO is all about learning while you're doing. While training at AFCO, you'll learn how to be a better public speaker, how to lead small groups, and how to utilize the latest technology to dynamically present Bible truth. You will learn how to confidently share your faith with others anytime, anywhere, while at the same time developing a vibrant personal devotional life. You can even earn college credits during this session. So if you desire to be an effective soul winner and to develop lifelong friendships with like-minded people, then contact AFCO now because there's going to be limited space for this life-changing program. Our next AFCO on-location training will start August 19 through November 20th, 2021. For more information, please go to afco.org. That's A-F-C-O-E dot O-R-G. Moses is making excuses. He's looking for his get out of God's will free card, but it's hard to turn down God. We should not so quickly dismiss his objections though, without first trying to understand them. He lacks self-confidence. He knows that the Hebrews are an unbelieving people. So why would they trust this rogue preacher from the wilderness? 
He has questions and concerns. And like many of us, he's not just going to take a blind step of faith. He expects answers. And God doesn't shy away from giving them either. I don't think God rebukes Moses because God understands that these are legitimate concerns. I think God has to deal with these on a daily basis, these concerns, human doubt, skepticism, Mm -hmm. apostasy. But the thing is, God has a solution for everyone. So when 13, Moses says, well, what's your name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I'm not the God of the river, Nile. I'm not the God of the sun. I'm not, you know, whatever deity you want to name in the Mm -hmm. Egyptian uh, uh, pantheon. I am the God who is. No predicate, no adjectives. I'm just, I'm God, the only God. That's the implication of I am who I am. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds redundant, but it's basically the name I am. I exist. Always have, always will. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like such a power move on God's side. Yeah, well, it should you know, be because he's all powerful. <laughs> right. He, he doesn't have to go into detail or yes. at this point, he, he's not going into his, his, this is not the show me your glory, you know, yeah. conversation. God is just like, I'm here. That's enough. That's all the convincing you're going to need is that I am who I am. There's no implication in God's answer that God is in any way dependent on the created order for his existence. Mm. He made it. But it is not him. The creation of the, you know, the created world is not God. It expresses who he is. It's his handiwork. But he's not dependent upon his own creation for his own existence. All of the gods they knew in Egypt were essentially gods who were embedded and trapped in nature, mm. uh, which is kind of a contradiction, but that's how paganism yeah. works. Um, so this name alone is answer enough. And Moses is satisfied with it. And what, what I love about this is it is, it's God pulling the veil back. Yeah. It's God saying, listen, it's not that I'm unwilling to be known. Your ancestors have known me. Abraham knew me. Isaac knew Recall me. Recall all knew the stories. Me. Right. He's like, yeah. I'm, I haven't been hidden. It's my people who have hid themselves from me. That's a good point. And right now, this, this conversation leading to this revelation of God's name and who he is, Whilst, whilst there is the aspect of the supernatural, at the end of the day, it is just a conversation. It is just Moses curiously asking God about who he is and God just giving answers. And Extraordinary, isn't it? The simplicity of this just really speaks to me because this is, what, this is how faith should be. Yes. I should be able to understand the God that I'm saying I give my life to. Maybe not all the ins and outs, but a conversation with this God where I'm asking him questions and where he's giving me answers. I don't think that should be too far-fetched. I think that should be as simple as of an experience as it looks right here. We can speak to God as we would to a friend. Mm. That in itself is a miracle that I can't comprehend. Yeah. You know, and sometimes we don't understand how horrible sin is in the eyes of God. But maybe we should know that better because that even emphasizes again the fact that this God who is so loving, so selfless, would condescend to speak to a sinner Mm. as if they were his friend. Now, this can only happen because of the cross, Mm. and the cross hasn't even happened yet, but God's anticipating that act of redemption. Without the cross, there could be no conversation at all because we are simply too sinful for God to have a relationship with. But he's taken upon himself to bring heaven down to man and through Jesus to establish this, well, like Jacob's ladder, this right. this uh, this discourse between fallen man and God. Mm-hmm. And this is a God of love. He can't stand to leave this rebellious race to their own fate. Mm. And so this this is um this is a model, I think, for the Christian walk in the sense that every day God's performing miracles. And if we'll just look at them and ask him why, we can begin to learn more about him and and grow. So Moses is also developing spiritually through this conversation. But there's no guaranteed solution. In other words, there's nothing in this narrative that suggests that Moses has to do what God's asking him Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. 
And I think that's even evident just in the initial approach. Yeah. Is that God is not trying to force this man into, you know, submissive service, but he's saying, listen, you can, you can be used. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm more than willing to take you from this predicament that you're in and bring you to a place where you actually do the thing that you wanted to do in the first place. And that's a neat point. Yeah. You set out wanting to deliver Israel. You failed. But I'm the God who will make your dreams come true. Mm. Not in the way you initially thought I would, but in the way that actually works. Namely, as a humble instrument in God's hand. Such that when the deliverance does happen, you will never for a moment think, I did that. Mm. You will always say, God did that. Praise the Lord. Right. That's what he's waiting for. And mm -hmm. he waits a long time, 40 yeah. years in this case. You know, we, we sometimes think, well, you know, God, if you haven't done it within a week, it's never going to happen. Right. 40 years. Our timeline is not God's, but God does not approach Moses until he knows the time is optimal, mm -hmm. both for Moses to agree, but also for Moses' own personal development. Moses doesn't doubt God. He doubts himself. He comes to God and says, well, what if they don't believe? And this is the great problem in the world. People simply don't believe. Oftentimes, I feel like Moses in these situations. I'm called to witness, but people don't even believe in the Bible anymore. Not really. And this is a legitimate concern to bring before the Lord. But we don't do that. We have these questions, but we're scared to ask them because we think that somehow that makes us less Christian. But what Moses shows us here is that if we have a legitimate problem, we should take it to God and say, so what should we do? This is a relationship with God. And the reality is that if we are not coming to God and asking him the hard questions, if we're not asking God why and how, then eventually we will be disconnected. Not because he doesn't want to answer us, but because we aren't even asking him in the first place. God is the greatest teacher, but we must first enroll as his students. I mean, as a teacher, I know if you answer questions they're not asking, they don't value the answers. You have to find a way, like a burning bush, to get students curious. And then they're asking the questions. And then they value. So this is all very human. Well, of course, very human, also very divine, because we're created in the image of God. So what's the Lord going to say to this question? Well, he tells him that you've already got the solution. <laughs> Verse 2 is fantastic. Yeah. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? This is chapter 4, verse 2. And he said, a rod. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Well, Moses, what's in your hand? Moses looks, oh, it's my rod, Lord. <laughs> like, what are you expecting? <laughs> what, what kind of answer is this? <laughs> it's all, you can see that the Lord has a sense of humor. Mm. We didn't invent that. It was put into us. And of course, this is the kind of humor that's highly educational. And he said, cast it on the ground. So Moses cast it on the ground. Now, what's amazing here is God's not giving him a textbook answer. Mm. He's giving him an experience, a life experience mm. that encapsulates an answer. Oh. And too often, we're textbooks mm. when God wants to use experiences. Mm. So this is one of those you know, wonderful moments. And he cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. It did not become a bunny rabbit. It did not become a puppy or a kitty cat. It's a serpent. Now, it doesn't say it's a poisonous serpent, but Moses fled from it, which to my mind means that we can infer that it was poisonous mm. because this man lived out there and he's not going to flee from a harmless snake. But he flees from this one. <laughs> he runs. And then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Mm. And of course, anyone who's ever caught a snake, if you take it by the tail, of course, I did this as a kid, what did that snake do? Whipped right around and bit me on the hand because mm. that's what a snake should do if it's grabbed by the tail. And God says, grab it by the tail. God knows how to teach us things. Mm. Now, at that point, Moses 
obeys. And this is really important because God is now showing Moses that Moses will obey him even if he's scared. Mm. Moses actually does it. And this doesn't seem like it's really in character because up till now he's been kind of resisting taking up this mission. But when God says, take a poisonous snake by the tail, what does Moses do? He trusts him. And he does it. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, the miracle. Mm -hmm. So now he has an actual experience where he obeys God against all of his natural instincts. He obeys him without questioning. He just does it, which of course implies 40 years of communing with God and trusting in him. And as soon as he obeys God, it becomes a rod again, Mm -hmm. something that actually you could use to kill a snake if you had to. So now Moses has a personal experience that God is completely trustworthy. Mm. Even though all your human instincts say, don't do that. It's, you know, it's kind of like paying tithe when you're broke. <laughs> all your financial instincts say, and all your advisors from the world say, no, 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 don't pay your tithe. And God says, pay it. And so you take the snake by the tail, and guess what? Your bank account is fine. Mm. People tell stories like this. Yeah. These are really important events in our lives, but I wonder how often we're really open to these kinds of miracles. And essentially what God is trying to teach Moses is, yes, even when you are afraid, if you do step out in faith and trust my word, it is going to work out. And your fears dissolve into thin air. That snake will become a rod again. It will be fine. You won't be harmed. You can trust me. And that is, I think, where this whole thing is going. He has this this burning bush and then he calls out to him and he he reminds him who he is. And this is essentially God's, it's it's the art of persuasion from the divine where he's trying to bring Moses just to the point where Moses can say, okay, let's go. Because remember, the plan of redemption, insofar as it relates to fallen man, is entirely focused on persuasion. Mm. In other words, if our hearts can be fully persuaded to abandon sin and embrace our salvation and embrace God's law, the great controversy can end. Mm. He needs a remnant, and he'd like everyone to do that, but of course it won't turn out that way. But God just needs a people, and I don't mean a denomination per se. He needs a people who are absolutely committed, convinced, Mm. persuaded that anything God asks them to do, they can do and it's the best possible option. And there's another miracle too. There's the hand going into the under the coat next to the stomach, and then he pulls his hand out, and it's leprosy. So in verse 6 and 7, God does yet another miracle. Now, this is a different one. It's not grabbing a poisonous snake by the tail. It has a different character. This is the character of an incurable disease. Mm. So the first one is fears that the snake might bite me, The second miracle has to do with the fear that I have been bitten. Right. And those are two different kinds of fears, but they're very powerful. Mm -hmm. They both influence us all the time. I, as a fallen human being, am terrified of the future, especially, you know, with the the situation in our country today, uh, where the Constitution is being attacked and there's, you know, partisanship on every level. It's just frightening as an Mm -hmm. American. I've never witnessed it or experienced it before. There's fear of the future. But then there's also fear of what is. You know, in this case, leprosy is a good metaphor for sin. I'm afraid not only for what that snake might do to me if I pick it up by the tail, in other words, future hazards, I'm afraid of my own capacity for self-destruction or my own inherent diseases of sin and, you know, you name your character defects. Most of us are afraid of ourselves because we know the the capacity we have to mess things up. Mm. You know, I've become a Christian, but I have an addictive personality. I'm leprous. There's no hope for me. I say, you know, Lord, I won't spend eight hours a day on the internet. And then I do. (laughs) You know, I've got leprosy. So that's a huge fear. And God deals with both of those different fears with these two miracles. Moses seems convinced. All his questions have been answered, and oh, how they were answered. 
God has revealed himself in ways that he never has to anyone else before. Not this personally. But after all of this, there's still something holding him back. There's his own lack of belief in his ability. No doubt his mind has been blown. There is a difference between convincing and convicting. And Moses simply isn't convicted that God can actually change him. Sure, he's humble, but there's a fine line between true and false humility. And that line is usually painted with a brush of trust. You can doubt yourself, sure, but when your humility holds you back from fulfilling God's requests of you, then call a spade a spade. It's not humility, it's unbelief. So he saved the most serious defect or doubt for Mm -hmm. last. He's believed God up to this point. God has persuaded him. Moses is compliant with God's will. God has responded to his questions. This is how the Christian life should, should go. And then Moses says, but Lord, it's not, you know, the, the translation says, I am not eloquent. And then, um, and he says, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. <laughs> well, Lord, you've committed a lot of really persuasive miracles. But there's one miracle that hasn't happened yet. I was not persuasive before you came. And now that we've had this conversation, I'm still not very good at speaking. Mm. And this is a serious point in the narrative because he's basically saying, well, Lord, you want me to speak, but I can't speak very well. And it doesn't appear that you're going to wave a magic wand over my tongue and make me eloquent because it hasn't happened yet. Mm. Now, is this a legitimate uh, reservation or not? Well, I think Moses is telling the truth in the sense that he is not eloquent. And he says, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. It's repeated. It's emphatic in Hebrew narrative. What does this actually mean? Hmm. Does it just mean that he has to search for the right word? Does he he stutter? Does he have a, a, does he need a speech therapist as we would put it? Well, God's answer, I think, tells us a lot. Look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 4. So the Lord Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Now, I have wrestled with this text for a while because the implications of this are, are quite profound. He goes on to say, Or who makes the mute? That's the person who literally can't speak mm-hmm. at all. The deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Now, most of those are what we'd call handicaps. Except one. Except for the seeing person. So God makes man's mouth. And in the case of the person who has a speech defect, God makes them too. Now, I don't think God's taking responsibility for the effects of sin, Mm -hmm. but he's saying in spite of sin, and even though sin you know, messes things up at the DNA level, those people are still my creation. Mm. Even though they're not lovable often, even though they're sinners, but even though they might be, you know, defective in terms of their DNA, they might have a handicap or whatever it might be, I made that person. Mm. This is a profound, if you want to say, proof text for preserving the sanctity of the lives of the handicapped. This is against euthanasia or convenient abortions. God made that Down syndrome child. Now, of course, it doesn't say Down syndrome, but it's not a clinical line. But the mute, the deaf, the blind, but also he makes the seeing. Now, do you see the effect of this line? They're all on the same plane. Mm -hmm. They're all in the same category. And sometimes we want to put the handicapped over there, and we're over here because we're normal and you know, we're nice to them, and we put them in special education. That's fine. But they're not really as good as us. They're not as valuable as us. Mm-hmm. God says the opposite. He said, I made them all. Right. I made the normal, as we put it, and the people who are handicapped. I made them all. And then he says, have not I the Lord? It's very emphatic. Moses, and this is a mild rebuke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't speak very well. This leads me to think, And I could be wrong about this, but I think verse 11 is actually saying that Moses' defect was pretty serious. Mm. 
because it's categorized in a sense along with the mute. It's not just someone who, you know, has a little hesitation when they speak. Right. I think this is Moses pointing out something that is a really serious problem if you're going to be a public speaker. But then God says, haven't I made you this way? So if I made you this way, not that God is responsible for the defects of DNA, but he's saying, I still made those people. And if I called you to do this mission, why is it a problem? Mm. This really challenges human perspective. Yeah. And also reveals to us who God really is. God is not put off by our defects. He only loves us all the more mm. because we're in such need. So Jesus said, I came to save sinners. I came to save people who were rejected as not normal. That's what I'm here for. And I want to save everyone, but I'm here for the people who can't speak. Right. And when, when a person who has a defect like this is called to speak, the only way they can take on this mission is totally through faith. So he could pick up the snake by the tail, but this one, mm-hmm. this is, this is, I would say that this is something that Moses decides he can't risk. And God says in verse 12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. I'm going to make it happen, Moses. But then look what Moses says in 13. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Now that sounds pretty polite. Mm-hmm. But it's a polite way of saying no. He's begging God. And you know, it's funny. It sounds like he's hoping the Lord will send someone else. But in 14, God gets angry Mm -hmm. against Moses. Because what Moses is really saying is, I don't trust you on this one. So Moses isn't perfect. Yeah. So what does God do? Moses has finally said no. And if you think about it, he said no to everything. Mm -hmm. He's actually, at this point, he's been persuaded, it seems... But now, with this last issue of his ability to speak, Moses basically says, you chose the wrong man. I know better than you do, God. Which is the sin problem, isn't it? Yeah. So at the end, Moses says no. What's God going to do now? Well, he's not going to make Moses do it. Mm. But he does get angry. It doesn't please God. Now, what is God's anger? Is it that God's feelings have been hurt or he feels betrayed or I don't really know but I think the anger is born of love Mm. he's angry in the sense that God knows how much grief this failure of faith will cause down the line and it did yeah it really did because God didn't choose Aaron and there were good reasons not to choose Aaron but now God in a sense has to use Aaron because Moses won't do it I think that this this realization that Moses has come to that you know he 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 almost only sees his inadequacy here he's just like he can't as much as God has given him ample evidence he's still looking within yeah. and he's still seeing that I just don't think this is possible and I mean it's it's very relatable even even in the fact that God doesn't necessarily tell him that he's going to solve his problem. No. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a good speaker then, you know? Yeah, that's he, right. He he tells him, I'll be with you. Now just go, like go out there and do it. And although it's although it's not the same thing, I remember um, when when going through this, not even, the, it, was, it was maybe a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. um, reading this this passage and seeing that Moses has this genuine fear. And I asked myself, okay, so where am I in this story? You know, it's not yeah. it's not so much speech for me. What no. is, but but what is it that that when God is is bringing something before me, I, I'm I'm kind of shying away from. I realized what that thing was, and it was the fact that now, and and maybe even by the time this episode goes out, I'll be a father. Yes. And whilst that was always a desire of mine, there was always a reason to hold back. Because yes. I didn't grow up with a father. Oh, I didn't yes. grow up seeing, you know, what that looked like. There was no kind of manual on how to do it. Yes. And I found myself in this position where 
when it was already too late, <laughs> coming to God and saying, "But this is not something that I can do." You That's know, right. I've I've never seen this done well, even even in my observations. Never, like let alone in my own family. But you 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 have friends and other family members, and and you go to their home, and 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 things still look a mess. Yes. You know, and you think. <laughs> There's no way I can do this, and I go to scripture. I'm like, well, let me let me find it in scripture, and then you just see again mess after mess after mess. That's right. And there's fathers upon fathers upon fathers who, who fail consistently, and many who who lead their own children to ruin. And and I look at verse 11, and and God just says, Dean, who made fathers? You know, who put that that ability within man and woman to procreate? Goal. And of course, Dean, I lost my father at a young age, so I grew up without a father, mm-hmm. largely. Uh, and a, a promise that my dad circled in his Bible before he died says this, where God says, I will be a father to, to the, the fatherless. fatherless. So by faith, you recognize that God has been your father mm-hmm. and that he will be the model that you seek. But all this requires a faith transaction. There's a huge risk because you don't see the actual nuts and bolts yet. This is why this last scene in the narrative is so much like sanctification. Mm. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And as you pointed out, there's no implication here that when God says, I'll be with your mouth and teach you what to say, that he'll sprinkle magic dust or make an instant miracle of healing such that Moses can just be a good speaker. And that's significant because in our walk with God over our lifetime, there's just not a, you know, a five-minute sanctification process. Right. Because it has to be organic in the sense that we have to be persuaded every step of the way. And I don't know about you, but when God sets out to persuade me of something, I sometimes drag my feet. Mm-hmm. Sometimes for years, because I'm terrified of doing what he asked me to do. And he's so patient. He doesn't reject me. But of course, there's a limit to this. And you don't want to play with this sort of, you don't want to procrastinate. But genuinely, like Moses, there's times when we just can't see our way through. And then there's this, this scary example of Moses saying, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. But yet that's, that's also, it's both a negative example, but it's also encouraging because we know Moses is now in heaven. Mm-hmm. So this, this refusal, although it upsets God, he doesn't sever the relationship. Right. And God, I, I call it the fallback position. God says, and he does this with you and me and all of us, he says, well, if you won't do it this way, I'll make some concessions. Now, he won't violate principle. Mm-hmm. He won't mess up the rules of the universe, but he will make some concessions to human weakness, kind of like divorce during the Exodus. Mm. Hardness of hearts sometimes in a way means that God has to lower the standard. Otherwise, he gets no cooperation. And this is the divine wisdom. So then he says, well, and I love the way God says this. So the anger of the Lord, verse 14, was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Isn't that a wonderful line? By the way, Moses, if I was going to choose my deliverer, my human agent, solely on the basis of how well they could speak, I would have chose Aaron because I know he can speak well. But obviously, that's not the main qualification here. And let this be a warning to all of us who are articulate. People like you and I who can get up front and speak and assume that because we're born with a talent for public speaking, that God has automatically chosen me. Well, yeah, that's a talent God can use, but the real qualification is humility. He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you've just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or hearken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. We would love it if you could subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could go as far as leaving a review, that would be amazing. You can follow us on your favorite social media accounts, Facebook or Instagram, at whythedidthat. 
And of course, YouTube, where you can actually watch this episode now as well as listen to it. So make sure to check that out too. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast and keep it running, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash WTDT. This show was produced by the supremely talented Paul Keefe and the video editing by Jonathan J.J. Jensen. And a special thank you to everyone else on the Why They Did That team. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.